Welcome to the Entertainment Engine. Welcome to Season 2 of the Entertainment Engine Podcast. I'm Pete Moore. And I'm Bex Gregory. This podcast was created by our company, Seamless Entertainment. We're providing in-depth advice and information for creatives pursuing a career in the entertainment industry. It's a great passion of ours and we're looking forward to sharing our knowledge with you all. Each week, we'll be bringing our listeners some great entertainment facts and news mixed in with special guest interviews from seasoned professionals who share their insight and experience of the business. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on all streaming platforms so you never miss an episode. And what a bonus, it's totally free. If you would like to learn more about what we do, please visit our website at www.seamlessentertainment.co.uk. This week, we have our first special guest for season two. And to kick off the new year, we have Welsh-born singer-songwriter James Kennedy on the show. James is from South Wales, and as well as being a singer-songwriter, he is also a record producer and owner of the record label and music publishing company Conic Records. James was in the band Kaishira for over 10 years before they broke up in 2018 after releasing three albums. James has also released four solo albums with a back catalogue which includes prog rock, acoustic music, experimental electronica, alternative rock and pop. James has just released his latest album, Make Anger Great Again, a heavy alternative rock solo album with strongly political lyrics throughout, for which James plays all the instruments on his latest album, which he also produced. Then, on October the 18th, 2020, James had his first book published entitled Noise Damage, My Life as a Rock and Roll Underdog, published by iBooks. This book is a memoir-styled journey following his life as a band coming up during the crash of the industry and what it is like to be in a band that doesn't make it. There are thousands of rock memoirs about bands who do make it, but this is the tale of the unsigned, the unsung and the unheard. James shares the magic of that first guitar, that first gig and that first tour as well as exposing a lot of industry scams and unfairness. James also writes articles on a range of issues from the music industry to mental health and politics. James is highly active online with a very large following with over 300,000 followers. So let's take a listen to the conversation Pete had with James. Welcome to the Entertainment Engine today and my special guest is singer-songwriter, musician and author James Kennedy. James, how are you today my friend? I'm great, Pete. Thanks for having us, man. I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. And um, I see you're part in the country in Wales. And you now, how's Wales been over the last sort of week, weekend? Have you been up to anything fantastic? Obviously, with lockdown, it's been a bit difficult, I presume. Uh, Wales has been cold um, and dark. And I've been spending all my time indoors, which is where I normally spend all my time. So not a lot of difference for me with a lockdown, to be honest. The, the, the global pandemic hasn't really changed my life much because I'm a, I'm a hermit by nature anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so have you been um, one of the one of the things for me? How have you been um, coping with, you know, food deliveries or has that really not bothered you? Have you been going to the shops or have you been getting on, online sort of supermarket deliveries? How's that been working? 
exactly the same as normal, really. We've got a supermarket around the corner. So, um, yeah, I do my weekly shop. And, um, yeah, like, nothing's, nothing's really changed, you know, for me. And I, I know that for many people it really has, especially people who've been struggling, you know, with uh, vulnerable family members or, um, you know, their work and things like that. So I've been very fortunate um, that I that I do what I do for a living and that I can kind of work from home. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's not really... Uh, you know, hindered my life too much. No, well, that's well, I mean, that's good to hear. And, and I think, like you say, the world is, um, it's been a mad, mad place this last sort of 12 months. And uh, again, hopefully there's there's some light at the end of the tunnel so everyone can move on and, and you know, do what they need to do. Entertainment's taken a big old, well, it's taken a massive hit, really, retail. I, think, I don't think there's anything that's been untouched, really. So it'd be good just to get back to some normality. Well, Amazon's doing good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they are. I, I think they've probably employed another 5,000 delivery drivers by now, to be honest. <laughs> Amazon and Netflix and Google, they're doing fantastic. But everybody else is uh, is, is on their knees right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Just to, I suppose, just to sort of go back to the beginning, really, James, tell us a little bit about your journey and where you grew up and, you know, your time, um, your, your time as a youngster. Well, I, uh, I, I've always uh, lived in South Wales. I've moved around a lot. I was born in Cardiff, um, raised in Barry for a few years, and then moved right from the city into a little village called Little Mill that didn't even have a shop or a post office or anything. Um, in fact, it had nothing for about 20 miles uh, radius. Um, so that was a totally different sort of world from where I'd spent my first um, sort of 10 years. But it's where I learned to play guitar. I got into music there. It wasn't a lot else to do. And um, yeah, I just um, spent all my time with music, learning to play guitar, teaching myself, and then um, got my first job as a music producer in a in a studio about an hour away. Again, in a in a, in a sort of like remote Welsh town, um, as a lot of these studios are, you know, for uh, they're normally out in the sticks, aren't they? Like rock Rockfield and places. Um, and yeah, so and here I am. I still live in South Wales. I live in a place called Aberdeer now, which is just down by the Beacons, which is nice, nice and scenic and rural. Yeah, nice part of the world. Yeah, it is nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's lovely, especially in the summer. But uh, which we don't get a lot of that down here. But yes, yeah, so I'm I'm very fortunate. <laughs> I've got a nice. Uh, I have no neighbours. I've got a nice little country house overlooking the fields, and I've got a studio upstairs where I made my last album. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I would have written a book and everything if I didn't live here, because there were literally no distractions. It's very quiet. Yeah, it's very private and for someone who's like quite a solitary nature person like myself it's perfect when, when did you get the bug in the music industry what age did it sort of grab you and go i really want to do this i think as soon as i started playing guitar i got my first guitar when i was nine and my dad showed me how to play a basic blues riff and as soon as i saw that and as soon as i could play it myself my you know my brain just fired up i was like wow yeah <laughs> I, you know, I can't i can't describe this but yeah i haven't felt anything like this this is this is my new obsession, you know? So it was my obsession um, until I was a, a, like a 15-year-old. By the time I was 15, I could properly pr play, you know? I was learning all the technical stuff and I was playing in my first band. We were doing proper gigs around Newport in the clubs and everything. And by the time I was 20, I got my first job as a um, sound engineer uh, producing in a local studio. So it's kind of always been in me, really. I grew up in a house where music was played all the time, you know, good music like uh, Pink Floyd, and Frank Zappa and, you know, proper out there stuff. 
So um, I was raised, I think I was raised right, you know, so music was always in my blood and I was always around it as a kid. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it's just always been my life, really. I mean, I haven't really had a, a so-called normal day job since I was 25. And that was only for six months, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty good going. And I think with, with the influences of that, the music you mentioned, Joan, like Frank Zappa and, you know, bands and artists like that. Did that come from your mum and dad? Was that just their influences really yeah completely completely and i didn't i kind of resisted it when i was younger because i was like oh that's dad music you know what i mean and then <laughs> as soon as like as soon as i started playing it out i was like oh no actually this is awesome you know frank zapper and dave gilmore and yeah yeah i was really thankful that i had cool parents that raised me listening to that stuff you know full of bad language and 10 minute jams you know rather than parents <laughs> that raised me listening to like you know <laughs> church music or something you know yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, yeah, it was quite funny with me when I sort of, my mum, I suppose at the time before I got into the industry, and she went to see Tom Jones perform you know, several times. And, you know, I, I was sort of getting into the industry then. And, you know, I didn't realise my mum was sort of about 18, 19, and she saw Tom play in front of 30, 40, 50,000 people. And you know, I look back now and think, you know, that must have been amazing for a young girl to actually do that and go and see that type of performer. Oh, God, yeah. It must be mind-blowing. I mean, we, we take so much for granted now, I suppose, these days, because everything is so available, you know? But I think it may have meant more back in the day, because you had less less, um, less icons back then, didn't you, you know? Yeah, and I think, yeah, I think it was special. I think, you know, I'm, I'm always, you know, ranting on about the fact that people shouldn't be famous for the sake of being famous. It should be this sprinkle dust that just goes over people, and, and it should be back in the 40s and the 50s where you have real celebrities real icons real and i know the world's changed but you know sometimes i think when you lose that little bit of sprinkle dust it, it's a bit like when you find out there's no father christmas it sort of sends <laughs> you around the bend a little bit to be honest with you <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's the, with the internet now, as amazing as it is, and, and the, all the opportunities and platforms that it gives to everybody, it is a kind of oversaturation thing now. There's no mythology, there's no mystique. Everybody's um, on Instagram, you know, you know everything about everybody. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm all for it. I'm not sort of like, um, I'm not one of those old school guys that moans about the good old days or whatever, and I think it's amazing. But yeah, there's a lot, I think, that's lost in the um, in the transition as well, though, you know. It, 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 nothing, like you say, you know, Things aren't as special anymore because everybody's famous now, you know? Yeah, yeah everybody's got that 15-minute culture. And, and I think <laughs> looking at, I suppose, you know, back in the day with the albums and the way albums were put together, I see you just released your latest album, Make Anger Great Again, this past September. And what inspired you for this album, James? And also, it's a great name, by the way, really cool. like that. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Well, I think... <laughs> You could probably quite clearly see in the title, uh, the inspiration was uh, our our good friend, old Mr. Trump there. Um, <laughs> so I kind of hijacked his, uh, his Make America Great Again for uh, more sort of uh, revolutionary means. But um, I, I kind of, uh, I wrote the album, I started writing it in December and I recorded it all in February. So this was pre-pandemic and it was just about really um, everything that was going on at that time, you know, like Brexit and Trump and Boris and, you know, Corbyn. And, you know, I've always written political music and um, 
I think it was just I, I, most of the stuff I've written about in the past has been quite lofty. You know, I've talked about like globalization and things like that, like like big global issues. But with these, it was just it was much more. They were much more immediate issues, things that were happening in our country at, at that particular time, rather than global issues. And um, yeah, I was just why aren't more people angry about this? I felt like we just become so used to it that um, I just couldn't get my head around it. So I was like, you know, we need to like. You know, we need to do something about this. Why? Well, you know, it's like the, from the net, from the film, the network. I'm mad as hell, and, and I won't take it anymore. Yeah. It was that yeah. kind of sentiment. Yeah. And uh, it just came to me. I like make anger great again. I thought, yeah, that's awesome because you know we can we can steal Trump's kind of um, motto and, and and repurpose it for uh, for our own use. You know. But then I picked up the master disc for the record on March the twentieth, uh, the day that they announced the lockdown. So. Um, I think the frustrations and everything that happened then during the pandemic with people uh, realizing, you know, the government don't care that much about them. And, we, and that coincided with the Black Lives Matter protests and the police brutality thing and, you know, the anti-lockdown protests. And the whole world seemed to be going, you know, everything I was saying on the record, like, why, you know, let's make anger great again. Let's rise up and do something about it. Within a few months of making that record, the whole world had changed and everybody was on the streets, you know, it was... Uh, when, by the time the album came out in September, people were like, oh, this is about Black Lives Matter and, and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, no, I wrote this months ago. <laughs> yeah, and I think, again, James, it always amazes me how the power of music can actually send a message to people. And and sometimes when you are angry, you know, probably like me, when, when you're sort of relaxed and chilled and nothing really sort of, I wouldn't say bothers you, but the universe doesn't really want to know. It's when you start to get angry and fed up with the way the world is and you start growing up. And unfortunately, when you get beyond a certain age, you actually see the way the world is. And it's, it's, yeah. it is what it is. And it's, it's either frightening or scary or, or you just think that illusion of, you know, Father Christmas isn't there. And, you know, it is a big bad world. And sometimes you have to make a stand. And so I think that's a, that's a positive, uh, positive thing to do. Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I think anger can be, um, it's a motivator, isn't it? You know, I think directionless anger, you know, like a rebel without a cause, well, that that's no use to anybody. But I think there's nothing wrong with having a bit of fire in your belly and thinking, no, you know, that is wrong and I oppose that and I'm passionate about it and I'm going to stand up and be counted, you know? And um, yeah, it, you know, we're all guilty of apathy. I was you know, apathetic for many, many years. You know, you try everything, you protest, you campaign, and you know, you get ignored, and none of, nothing ever happens. And it's easy to get cynical and apathetic. Um, so I think you know, a little dose of anger now and again is, is a mobilizer. It gets you out of your seat and, and gets you back out onto the streets. You know, yeah, it makes you feel alive. And I think it, 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 like you say, it puts that passion and that fire into your belly to say, look, I'm not going to take this. And how many times do we see people where, oh, I suppose, one of my sort of say bugbears but i suppose it's an interesting thought as well james where you go into a meeting um you have a conversation with somebody you get on really really well you come out of that meeting or that discussion with the, you know that person or those people and you think this is going to change the world what happens nothing three weeks goes by <laughs> no one turns your call they're too frightened to say yes um and if they do say yes they lose their job and you think why did i have that meeting what were you saying at that time was it because there was a file up your backside or you're scared of losing your job. And that's what really sort of gets on my nerves quite a bit. Oh, that's music to my ears, man, because I've been in that situation hundreds of times. And I've just, you know, I've given up now trying to figure out 
what it is that goes on in those situations. You know, like one minute you're the hottest thing someone's ever heard of and everything you're saying is just in alignment with what they think and it's going to be exciting, they can't wait, and then you get home and you never hear from them ever again. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, I can't fathom that. I can never fathom that. I'm not really trying to, but you sort of think, what, why did you have that meeting in the first place? What changed in three weeks? What, why yeah, did you, no, you know, yeah. what, what happened? What, what suddenly shifted that you couldn't do anything? Or, or it does come down to the point that I think people are scared to say yes, James. They're either scared of losing their job or they haven't got the authority or really they ain't got the balls to actually con convict what they say they're going to do. Well, I mean, I'm sure we're probably going to come on to this at some point in the conversation about the music business uh, because, yeah, I completely agree. And I've, I've, I think I've come to the conclusion that I think balls is definitely a part of it. And I think um, vision, I think, you know, like one of my big, biggest bugbears with this business, and I'm sure it's true of many others, is, is just the safety aspect. Like nobody's prepared to take any risks. Like all the classic albums and some of the biggest artists, you know, nobody would take a gamble on them when they started. And it, and it, and it, and it you know, when it blew up, then suddenly they became legends and icons who, 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 who nobody could get enough of. But I, I feel like that I've, I've experienced so much in my, in my journey here is just that complete lack of imagination in this business. You know, you, 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 you meet with these guys, you give them a very good proposal. And, you know, my band, for example, you know, we had several albums of good music that was always really well reviewed in all the mainstream mags. We were getting mainstream radio play. We were touring internationally, making our own money. We had a fan base. It was good, you know? And, um, and then you have these meetings and, and it, like, then you come away and then you find that they've signed some 15-year-old ukulele player that's never even made a song. And you're just <laughs> scratching your head like, I just don't get it, you know? But but they're thinking, we want the next Ed Sheeran. And that's, that seems to be the mindset in this business is, um, you know, you someone somewhere takes a risk on the right person and it pays off. And then everybody else in the business is just, you know, trying to replicate what they what they think that person did, you know? And it just becomes a copycat syndrome. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. And I think, I suppose, staying the label, you know, for a second, James, I know you've got your own label, a music publishing company, Connick, um, Connick Records. How long have you had the label? And was it to promote your music or is the label support and publish other artists? How was that sort of structured and set up? Well, we started the label in 2010. Uh, the band had been going a few years before that. And, um, yeah. you know, yeah. Going by what I just said, yeah, you know, we didn't have any luck with any labels or anything like that. So we, we decided to stop wasting our time going to meetings and chasing the carrot and set up our own label. So um, the band set up Conic Records in 2010 to put out our first proper commercial release. Um, so it was pretty much set up just to represent ourselves, really, just so that we could actually um, be a functioning band rather than, you know, a band that was trying to get a deal. We could actually be a band that had records out and was, and was you know, doing it you know so um so yeah and in the next five years then we released sort of like i think about it must have been about five albums i think of, of my band kashira and my own yeah. solo music yeah. and i think it might have been about 2014 when i decided to um expand it into a publishing operation because i was getting lots of opportunities um through the label that didn't really fit for my band or my music um particularly with sync and, um, you know, because I was writing hard rock music with <laughs> swearing and stuff, and it wasn't really advert friendly. And I started <laughs> to think, well, it's a shame that these opportunities are coming in. And, you know, I, I can't do anything with them, but, you know, I could give them to somebody else, you know. So um, that's when I, I sort of um, 
doubled down on expanding it into a publishing thing and actually approached a pile of other publishers in different territories and set up networks and relationships there. And um, sort of got a part of my mates on board as other as roster band um artists and everything and um worked with other singers and that's when uh, me and bex were doing some stuff as well you know uh, sharing catalog and things yeah and um yeah it kind of just blew up from there to be honest and then it kind of um got a little bit too big for me to manage in about 2017 and um i kind of took my foot off the gas with everything i had a bit of a personal sort of breakdown from you know just doing way too much and decided that I needed to sort of focus on my personal life a bit more and get a bit of work-life balance. And it kind of fizzled out then um, for a few years, but I'm rekindling it now, and it's still very much active. I still get loads of opportunities and stuff. Um, The the sync side and the publishing side, is uh, my my experience of that has been very different to my experience of the label side. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not funny hearing that, James, but it's also interesting and refreshing because I've seen quite a lot of people going into the into the sync side and and obviously on both sides with the label and sync are completely different and i mean what's your take on 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 both sides really what have been your experiences it's a very different culture i find dealing with publishers and sync people to be very pleasant and i find that people in the label side i'm not sure why this is tend to be still very much um stuck in that old school rock and roll debauchery kind of mindset you know um where it seems very much about you know the rock and roll ride and the gigs and the women and all that 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 seems to be my experience of it. Um, whereas music publishers tend to be a lot more pleasant; they want to meet and have a cup of tea and <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, very, no. very different culture. Yeah, no, I agree, and I think also as well. Would it? Do you think it would come down to the fact that the publisher is actually the custodian of the song, so they have a lot more sort of aligning with with the songwriter and the creators that they got a bit more sort of. I suppose they understand you a lot more than maybe the label because the label was just for me as well. It's just a bit like a train for the next act come along with the publisher does have far more longevity and sync as well is really the new label. Would you sort of agree with that? Yeah, I think, I think you're definitely right in that. And I think that also um, the publishing and the sync side is a much more financially stable and secure part of the industry rather than the, the label side where I think you've got to hustle a lot more on the label side which is where I think you get a lot of these guys who are wheelers and dealers and they're blaggers and they're on the scene and then you know one minute you're hot and the next minute you're not and they're off making a new deal somewhere else I think you've kind of got to fight for your scraps a lot more on the label side whereas on the publishing side yeah you know as exactly like you said you're the ownership of the song that's where the most of the money gets made you know um labels you know they have to keep their their work mules on tour the entire time to make any decent money but you know the publisher they got radio they've got performance royalties they've got sync and with sync you know you're getting your money up front you know which is um you know it's not a lot of places in the music industry where you get that so i think maybe they're a bit more secure they don't have to fight fight like dogs as much as the label side perhaps no, and I think that's probably why you see, you know, at Christmas time with all the back catalogue coming out, all the albums coming out again, and, and you sort of understand it once you've been through the industry for a while, because I think everyone chases that golden ticket of, I'm going to sign the big deal with the big major label. And with you and I know they're very far and few between, and they're looking at the next best thing around the corner that's going to sell a million records. But your publishing and the songs that you've written are going to last forever. And that's, you know, they're going to be handed down to your family and, you know, your children will hand them down and it's just got a lot more longevity than the one hit wonder that's been signed and has appeared on, you know, a TV show and it's tomorrow's chip paper. 
totally. And I think that publishing is going to outlive labels. I think there's always going to be major labels um, because they perform a very specific function that you can't do for yourself. But a lot of it now, most of what a label does, people can do for themselves and they are doing for themselves. Um, but publishing is still very much seen as a black art, I think. Um, I did a, a talk in Edinburgh for the White Days Music Convention on independent music publishing. And yep. it was a packed house, there was a full hall there. And um, we, there was four of us, no, three of us on the uh, panel and we were trying to explain um, how to set up your own uh, independent music publishing company. And, and you, <laughs> we did a Q and A at the end. Everybody was just thoroughly baffled as to what we were talking about there was zero zero interest there from the audience all of whom were musicians independent musicians and they were just like no this is like some kind of voodoo dark art thing that we know nothing about and you know we'll 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 just leave it we'll you know we'll, <laughs> we'll let you guys take care of it so um i i think that i think publishers uh, i think their job is secure for a, for a lot longer yet whereas labels i i think are having to um you know rebrand aren't they in terms of what it is that they actually do for artists anymore that's a really interesting point, James, because I think some of the acts that you know I've come across or work with or known, they, now you've got to you've got to know not just one area of the business. You've got to know six, seven, eight, nine, ten areas. And I'm been grateful to be through quite a lot of areas like yourself. And I think bands now have got to take the opportunity, especially with COVID. I don't think there's, you know, apart from what we've seen, I don't think a band's got much excuse anymore. I think they've got to come together with their A game, and they've got so many opportunities to actually, you know create great music, put it out on a platform, create an audience. We know what's happened with live, but I think they've got more of an opportunity. And I think you know, from a personal perspective, good to get your thoughts on it. I think there's only going to be one label and it's going to be universal. And there's going to be 5,000 independents around that, that universal will pick and buy and use what they will over the years. I don't know. Is that What do you think on that? Is that fair? I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you see the, the um, what is it now? It used to be the big four. I think it's the big three now, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's only going to get more and more concentrated as they buy each other out and stuff like that. And, and that, I, I see that as a very, I see that as a satellite really to what, what's going on on the mainland. Like the major label world exists in its own in its own little universe, doesn't it really? I mean, you know, I have no interest in being part of that machinery. Um, and I don't think you need to be. And I think most music now, uh, I'm guessing anyway, is probably independent. I think that probably accounts for the bulk of new music that goes out. And I think the major label model is still the same as it always was. You know, they sign up 50 bands, they, they throw them all out there and, and see which one sticks, whichever one sticks, you know, that becomes the next Coldplay or whatever. But, you know, people don't hear about all the, um, you know, the 49 other acts that got signed that month, no one ever heard about ever again. So that's, that's the model that they used to have and it seems to be the way that they still do it. And, and it, it's a model that's only durable as so long as you've got an absolutely sickening amount of cash. You know, if you can throw a million bucks into a new artist and guarantee that you'll get them onto every radio station, every festival, every magazine, every TV show, if you can guarantee that that can happen, which you can if you've got enough money to buy it, then um, that model will work for you. But that's not a model that's available to anybody who's not a major label. And um, the problem with that is, is that you're then forever indebted spiritually, financially and artistically to that label. And if you're not one of the lucky, that, you know, that one lucky artist that for whatever reason happens to stick, um, then, you know, you now don't own any of your catalog, you're in debt and you're on the, you're on the, you know, the landfill with everybody else. So I think 
for me and anybody that I know that's been around a minute, kind of doesn't have any real interest in the major label world. You know, they're much more interested in taking advantage of the new tools that are available to do it yourself. And, and I encourage anybody that, that ever asks me, you know, for advice or whatever, I say, do it yourself for as long as you can. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely echo that as well, James. And I think looking at the way the industry's gone and you know, your experience and you know, combining our experience together, it's not far from from what a major label would need. If you've got me, you, Bex, a few others, you suddenly got quite a, a niche label, and you don't all have to be under the same roof to actually put stuff together. You can all work remotely, you can all work from home or from a small office, and I still think you can pack a big punch. And that's why I think it's good for artists now to be able to put out their own material, even more so, but also be aware of what's going on on you know in the industry and and taking note of what's going on and being nosy and finding out what's going on in the business because you know I've gone through the career no one really told me how live worked until I sort of did it for 25 years and then I suddenly realized what it was all about um and the, the biggest thing for me is agents don't really talk to promoters unless they're getting great big fees for the act labels not really interested unless it's you know selling a million records they don't talk to each other publicist stands on their own it's just a very very disjointed industry and to be honest with you, it, it's amazing how anyone survives, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. It is, yeah. I, I think most people don't. I think we just hear about the ones that survive because they survived. <laughs> yeah. I know so many people, obviously, you know, I'm a musician. I've been around a long time and you know, I know a lot, most of my peer group are musicians as well. So um, you know, I've got so many friends who used to be signed to Sony. You know, I've got more, I know more people who, who, who've been signed to a major label and nothing happened for them than I do. I probably can count on like three fingers, the people I know who signed to a major label and, and you know, it worked out you know but um yeah it, it, the whole model is very much like a lottery i think yeah and i think you know some of the some of the investors or some of the institutions that we know or work with in the past and we got a very good friend of ours that is part of quite a big stock exchange and he loves the entertainment industry but he cannot get his head around how it works so when i you know when you eloquently said earlier james that you know <laughs> They, they sign 50 acts, chuck them at the wall and see which one sticks. When you say that to a proper institutional investor that's managed huge funds, you know, not millions of dollars, but hundreds of millions of pounds, and you say to them, just give us, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million, we're going to chuck that at the wall and we'll see what sticks. They look at you horrified and think, is that the business plan of the of the major labels? You go, well, yeah. And then they rely on their back catalogue because that's what they've done over the past 50 years. Yeah. And they're like, they look at you as if you've, it's as if you're stupid. Then they go away, do their research, and go, "Oh, you're right. Didn't I didn't realise it it worked like that? Well, yeah, it does." <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't think I think the music industry. I mean, I don't know, but uh, I'm guessing it must be fairly unique in that sense because, yeah, I mean, in any more traditional um, or, or normal kind of industry, that would just be a, an insane way of doing things. And the music industry, to me, yeah, that, that's why it's taken me so long to wrap my head around it is because it doesn't make any sense. It's a very strange way of doing things, and it hasn't changed. You know, it, it hasn't changed, and it is one thing that, yeah, it, it bothers me coming back to what I said earlier because you know there's a lot that gets lost in the in the mix there you know like vision talent innovation you know progress it's just you know it they haven't really changed with the times and they don't need to because their model is very much yeah we've got a ton of money and we'll make it all back somehow so why should we change you know yeah so it begs the question as well james is the people that are actually 
at the big corporations and the big labels. I suppose, really, do they really know what they're doing anymore, or is it just is it just a case of just throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks? I I, I don't know. I don't know either. I mean, um, and I'm sure they're very talented and very experienced. But again, I think that that everything they do exists within their own island, the major label world. And I, I think that there's a complete and utter disconnect between the major label world and the rest of us. Um, nothing the major labels do affects me or anyone I know in any way whatsoever. We're not interested in getting on Radio 1 because we know that door is closed to us unless you're on a major label or you happen to just get lucky one day. And, you know, I've been played on Radio 1 several times, but it was only through luck or the fact that one of the presenters was Welsh, you know, or something like that. But you can't, <laughs> you, know, you can't waste a lot of time worrying about stuff like that because... 99% of the time, those things, the big mags, the big festivals, the big TV shows, 99% of the time, those things are in the pocket of the major labels. You know, it's all part of the of the, the upper echelon cartel that exists floating up there in its own little paradigm somewhere. But for the rest of us down here on planet Earth going about our business, there's, there's nothing in that world that is relevant to us you know i mean we you can have a really good audience and tour the world and, and shift a million records and, and and make money on youtube and streaming and all that stuff without you know for, you could do it from your bedroom you don't need anybody else no 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 you don't and i think how how strong do you think the indie sector is at the moment james and do you think it will get you know better weaker or do you th- we'll, we'll see a lot more music coming into the into the marketplace how do you think that's going to go um, I don't know. I mean, it's got its own challenges. Oversaturation, I think, is a problem because, um, yeah, we now all have the tools to make our own music and get it out there and promote ourselves. But the problem is you know, everybody has access to those tools. So now it's just complete oversaturation. And, uh, and uh, you know, and qual- quantity doesn't necessarily mean quality, you know. So I think the problem with the indie sector is is definitely how do you get heard? You might be good, you may be working hard, you may be doing all the right stuff, but how do you get heard above the noise of absolutely everybody else in the world who's also doing the same thing? Yeah, no, I think, um, again, I agree with that, and it is very difficult. I mean, having worked in the indie sector you know, a long, long time like yourself and been on some of the panels and worked with some of the governing bodies, I always used to ask the question of, you know, how is everyone going to hit? You know, going to hear above all of this? Are are they really going to get anywhere? What is this music exactly going to do? Or is it just a case of having another glut of, you know, indie musicians that earn nothing and they're just running around for ten years, you know, chasing their tail, really thinking, what am I going to do for the next ten years? Yeah, it's so hard because there aren't really any answers out there either. I mean, if somebody could come along and say, right, definitely do this, and then you'll definitely, you know, <laughs> achieve this result, and you know that that just doesn't exist i think everybody's journey is different you know i've made a lot of mistakes i've done everything in the that the book has told me to do you know and and none of it worked out um and i've had a lot of successes and a lot of (laughs) awful failures so and 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 the things that have worked for me haven't worked for my friends and the things that have worked for them didn't work for me so i don't really know i think i think the only thing is to like you can do really is to trust yourself learn as much as you can but make yourself as um as independent as you can so that you're not you know if you if you put all your faith in what somebody else says and they're wrong well it doesn't really bother it doesn't affect them they you know they go about their day but to you it's held you back for six months and you've lost money and time in you know following their advice so 
the more you can insulate yourself and empower yourself so that you know the only person that's responsible for whether your decision is right or wrong is you and you're the only person that either is hindered by it or benefited by it i think that's the one of the main things for me is that i don't mind kicking myself for making a bad decision but i kick myself twice if i listen to somebody else when i kind of felt in my gut that what they were saying probably wasn't right but i listened to them anyway and then they went about their merry way and now I'm down by 10 grand and I've wasted six months. <laughs> so yeah. I think like, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no answers out there, but the more you can learn, the more skills you can learn and um, the more you can kind of educate and empower yourself, then you stand a better fighting chance. I think anyone that's still chasing the major label or, you know, taking too many other people's advice and doing things blindly without really thinking about it or learning about it themselves, I think they're going to waste a lot of time. Yeah, I think so. I think I think taking advice is 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 a good thing. I suppose one of the facts that I've areas that I learned is um, never assume and, and never uh, you know if you've got a gut reaction and, it, and you feel oh, I'm not too sure about that. It's normally your guts telling you, or you've got someone sitting on your shoulder that's telling you that little voice in the back of your mind. Go with that because I think it's it's never wrong to be honest with you. Um, you come away from a meeting, you think oh, I'm not too sure. Was that any good? Or was a little nagging at your mind? Just don't go through with it because, like you said, it's only you that's going to suffer. That other person or people are going to wander away into the happy sunshine and they're not really that worried, to be honest. Yeah, and it's really hard to do that. I mean, I've, I've fallen victim to that so many times because as a band, opportunities don't come along very often. So when they do, you really want it to be real, you know? And we got ripped off big time by a label. Uh, I had to you know, actually take them to court to get our money back. And then the guy ended up in jail in Barbados for shooting somebody. <laughs> it's like proper, <laughs> proper criminal stuff, you know? And, uh, and you know, yeah, well, like at the time that we signed the deal, you know, I, I really wanted to believe everything the guy was saying. And by that point, I was a few albums in, you know, I, I wasn't wet behind the ears or anything. But still, you know, the grind of doing everything yourself, even though we have more success by ourselves, there's still always that dream, isn't there, that you're going to sign that deal and people are going to help you out and it's all going to be happy families. And, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't work out. It just doesn't work out. But I also think as well, James, there's, there's a lot of... Um hearing what you're saying and I think I, th I think those experiences whatever people go through I think they're, they're necessary that, that those types of experiences some are bigger some are smaller I think people have to go through them to then suddenly go I get it I understand but I think it makes you a bigger stronger more adaptable person and I think they're good things to do because you know you're not going to go through that again well hopefully not yeah, I totally agree. And the book that I've just written, Noise Damage, is basically a really open and honest um, journey through my entire time in music. So all the all the mistakes I've made are in there. Um, and you and it's sort of, you know, you follow my mentality. So when I go into it, you know, it, like that deal I talk about when we went up in the car and, you know, in our broken down little car and we were, you know, chatting it out and thinking, oh, yeah, this is going to be awesome. When we got to the guy's big mansion and he had gold discs on the wall and he seemed like a cool guy. So all that hope, I think anyone who's, who's been in a band will relate to that kind of hope, you know, that you that you want to believe it. And then when it goes awfully wrong, you know, like two chapters later and, you know, court cases and things like that, um, that's all in the book. So you, you kind of follow the whole journey there and, and it doesn't end there. You know, it keeps coming, you know, the bad luck just keeps coming, but we keep trying for things. We keep turning up, we keep putting our money on the table and, um, and it, 
you know, and, and the bad luck, it just, you just can't believe how much bad luck <laughs> one band can have, you know, but we keep doing it. And through that process, exactly like you said, we became, you know, better business people, better musicians. Um, we had to overcome a lot of internal obstacles, you know, to do with confidence or, you know, um, better business manners. Uh, we had to overcome a lot of external obstacles like financial and health and, you know, work-life balance and all that sort of stuff. And we kept going. I think many people, they give up and possibly they should because I think, you know, you've really got to be in it for the long haul. You've really got to be kind of borderline crazy to put yourself through some of the crap that we would put ourselves through just to put a record out or just to try and get on a tour, just to keep moving, you know, one year into the next. And I think ultimately the ones that can weather that storm and come out the other side will come out better musicians, better people, and probably deserve to be there because they really want to be there, you know? Yeah, no, and I, and I, it's, it's quite apt you sort of moved on to that because I, I want to discuss more about your book, Noise Damage, which I, I really like the title and Life as a Rock and Roll Underdog. I mean, I've not heard that title before and I really like that. And was it published by iBooks and it was this October, James, I believe? Um, yeah, October the 18th. So it's been out for just over a month. Yeah, yeah. How's it, how's it going? And really, what, did the book come out of COVID, lockdown, or was it really come out of what we've just been talking about, your whole experience of the industry, really? Well, I wrote it last January. I started writing it January 2019, and I wrote it really fast. It was finished by March. So two months, I just blasted a chapter out wow. every day. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, which is pretty fast. And um, I think my band, Kaishira, broke up December 2018. Um, and we'd had a rough ride, but we, you know, it was our life for like 10 years. You know, we, It was you know, the full highs and lows of all of our daily life for 10 years so when it eventually came to an end um it was kind of like a reflective moment for me i was like wow i don't know who i am now you know that's been my world music's been my world being a trying to be a rock star has been my world since i was you know that 10 year old playing my first blues yeah. riff on the guitar you know yeah. and now here i am i don't have anything else you know i don't even have any money i still live with my parents you know <laughs> it's like this is my identity this is this is what I do in the world. So I was just very, um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't my choice. You know, the band broke up in a kind of unsavory way as they often do. And I didn't really have any ambition to write a book, but I think that it was just all that kind of um, existential stuff that was going on in me. I was thinking, right, well, man, I've done a lot of stuff, but does any of it mean anything now that it's all over, you know? And um, I really don't know why I started writing the book. Like I said to my girlfriend, you know, can you remember the first day that I went in and started doing this? And she said, yeah, but, I, you know, you never talked about writing a book or wanting to write a book. You just went in and started doing it. And um, that's my memory of it. I, I've never wanted to write. I love reading. I love books, but I've never had any ambition to write. Um, and it was never a decision. I just went in, started doing it, which is very bizarre. So I think it may have come more from um, just where I was at in my life, questioning, you know, who I was and where, you know, what my life was now going to be moving forward and trying to make some sense of everything that had happened. And I think perhaps it was maybe just more of a cathartic, journalistic thing for myself. And as it started to turn into a book and I started to realize, actually, there's a lot in here that would benefit other musicians and would be interesting to non-musicians to give them an insight into what we go through. Um, but I started to think, actually, yeah, that I should maybe try and get this out. 
So that's when I approached publishers. And uh, yeah, luckily within a few months, they had a publishing deal, which I think for most writers who like been to writing, writing college and, you know, written a few books and can't get them published, they probably hated my guts right now listening to this. But, <laughs> but, but it was, it, the whole thing was easy, man, for me. I, after the slog of being in my experience in music, uh, I wrote the book in two months and I had a publishing deal by April, you know, so it was very, um, probably just beginner's luck, I guess. Well, and maybe as well, James, because you got all that experience and knowledge behind you, you you wasn't actually talking about something you don't know. You actually put, you know, pen to paper on stuff that you actually knew, and that probably resonated with the publisher. And I think that's, you know, I'm just sort of chucking a few ideas at you, but that may be why the publishers thought, well, actually, this is quite interesting because it's coming from your gut and it's coming from your head of what you've done. And I think there's a big truth in it. I think at the moment, I think a lot of people you know are going through the the truth element where i think you do need to do that and you need to be true to yourself about what you've done over the last 40 50 60 years and i think it's important and maybe it was nagging at the back of your mind and you know I'm, uh, it's always sad for me to hear when bands break up and you know i've seen several bands do the same and especially when they put in a lot of hard work and a lot of effort and it's really really difficult because something tends to break after a while whatever that is finances or or home life, or whatever it is, it can be a multitude of things. But I do find it sad because, you know, when good bands break up and they're no more, you think well, that was a really cool band. And I, I, you know, I don't like hearing that because it's it's difficult. And you, put your, you know, you go through hurdles and you go through brick walls, um, and it's difficult. It's 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 just difficult. You can't teach that to anybody. So when you're going back to your um, your panel when you when you were talking about the publishing side of artists and musicians. It sounds to me none of them in that room were, were really ready to come to the table to understand what the music industry is all about. They're just ready to go out and play, and really that's all they should do, to be fair. But if they want to come to the table properly, then they got to bring their A game, and that's a whole different ball game. It's really... Yeah, it really is, man. Um, and I like to think that, like, um, you know, I don't want to sort of plug my book too much, but I think for musicians of all sort of levels, I think there's there's a lot in the book. I'm not just saying this because I wrote it, but there's a lot in there because uh, I'm brutally honest about my own journey over 20 years, you know, of making all the mistakes possible and having all the bad luck possible and very few windows of, uh, <laughs> of sunshine. Um, I think it would, like, even if they just, like, I'm not trying to plug sales, but, like, even if they just, like, download a copy for free or something on the so on the you know file sharing networks or something there's there's a lot in there i think that will give them an insight into the road ahead if they're just starting out and think wow actually do i want to go through that you know, because there's no harm in just playing for fun you know i mean no, there's a no, lot no no when I, when I think of just joining like a local blues band and just going down every now and then and playing a bit of guitar in, in my local pub that, that idea fills me with joy you know the idea of just playing my guitar again having a couple of pints with mates and then going home you know but you know there's just something in me that won't let me do that you know I've, I've got to make a record i've got to push it out you know and do things the hard way it's just in my blood i can't help it but i don't think that's the same for everybody i think a lot of people you know they like the idea of being in a band and when they start out they're enjoying it with their mates and it's all good times but the second you stay around a bit or you, or you start trying to take it seriously or do something you're in for a long rough ride so I think, you know, for people who are just starting out, who read my book, they might think, yeah, I don't want to go down that route, so I'm just going to keep it for fun with my friends. We're not going to bother putting a record out or setting up a website or anything serious like that. We're just going to do it for fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's good to know where you are, 
you know, if you're taking it seriously and you really want to go for it, well then, yeah, like you say, you know, you're going to have to strap in. You're going to have to bring your A game. You've got a lot to learn and you're going to have to get ready for a lot of slap downs and a lot of battles. And that's just the truth of it. Whoever you are, whatever your situation. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, no, I, I, I completely echo that and completely agree. And I think, you know, looking at your book and staying with it for a moment, James, I think it, where you had the magic of your first guitar and your first gig and of your first tour. So looking at exposing some of the industry scams and then the unfairness as we touched on, I mean, tell us a little bit more about that, where you sort of dig deep in the book and what you've sort of been exposing and your thoughts, really. Oh, the whole thing's in there. My whole experience of um, life as a musician, my entire life is in the book. Um, it's a short read. It's only 288 pages of most people have rattled through it in like, you know, two or three days because it's written like I talk, you know, it's very sweary and a lot of slang and I talk in muso talk. And, you know, it's it's kind of a, it's a combination of the um, trying to communicate to non-musicians what it feels like when you, when you, you know, you, you play your first guitar or you do your first gig and you set off on that road trip with your mates to go and play in London or, you know, Scotland for the first time, you know, playing music in the van and, you you know, you don't care that you're sleeping in a van at five in the morning and stuff like that because it's, and you played <laughs> to three people in Birmingham on a Tuesday night, you don't care because it was awesome, you know. So there's that side of it, but there's also, um, yeah, the reality of it, how it affected my mental health after a while. Too many years just getting rejected on a daily basis. You know, when you're putting 110% into everything, the emailing, the having to become a graphic designer and a web designer and a booker and, you know, printing up flyers in your bedroom and, you know, having to do literally everything yourself and getting absolutely, like, nothing back from anybody and you're playing to hardly anybody you can't get gigs you're getting stiffed by promoters and all that sort of stuff it really does take its toll on you after a while you know i mean it, it took about 10 years before it finally got to me but when it did you know i had to really question myself because you know i didn't have a relationship i had no money i was living with my parents it was almost like a drug addiction it had taken everything from me you know um so the the whole scope the whole spectrum of possibility is in that book because I've I've tried everything in my 20 years. I, you know, I've been uh, a musician, a songwriter, a producer, a music publisher, a label guy, <laughs> you know, uh, as well as all the day jobs that I had to do along the way, you know, to earn a little bit of cash here and there, a little bit of guitar teaching, that sort of stuff. So um, the whole the whole the whole range is in there. Um, so um, yeah, so. You know, if you want to sort of, if you want to um, get a full picture of possibility of what your life may or may not be like, <laughs> should, you, should you choose to roll that dice, you know, then then take a little look at the book. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, and I think, touching on your experience as well, James, when you get into a band and you got that enthusiasm and energy and, you know, you want to take on the world and go, I'm going to headline Glastonbury or Tea in the Park or, you know, Rockworth here in Germany, whatever you're going to do you know you shouldn't take that away from anybody i think that's great passion and great enthusiasm and you, everyone's got to have a dream but with your experience did you find within the, the, the band sort of um mechanics was there always one person doing everything one person doing something and everyone else doing nothing or did you have that and people turning up late for rehearsals what sort of experiences did you have in your band we had, again, a full range because I wrote all the music, uh, which is always a difficult dynamic for some bands. You know, some bands can do it like Muse or whatever, you know, where I, you know, I think it helps if you're friends from school and it develops that way. But I kind of had a, an album ready before I had a band. Um, 
So we had a lot of lineup changes because some people are happy to just play someone else's music and they're happy to just be a good drummer and play good music and, and go along for the adventure, you know. Um, but other people, they want to be writers and they don't like it if one guy's doing all the music and getting all the you know, all the accolades and stuff. So we had we had a variety of stuff, you know. Um, a lot of musicians came and went in the band for various different reasons. Um, some commitments you know they realized that wow this slog just isn't for me um <laughs> and they probably made the right decision by jumping ship um but by the end the third lineup which is why i think it affected me so much when it came to the end um because our final lineup was the best you know we were all great friends uh we were all on the same page musically and you know, like socially and in terms of our passion we wanted to kind of um you know take over the world and do what we had to do so it's such a shame when it ended but our dynamic was very much still i was still the writer i still produced the records and played most of the instruments and everything um but i was lucky by the end i had a sort of group of guys that were cool with that you know, and, and in terms of the mechanics of the band, I, I still pretty much did most of the legwork because I think I felt conscious of the fact that these guys are playing my music. So it's only fair that I do, you know, I've got the complete artistic control. So it's only really fair that I do the bulk of the legwork as well to try and do something with the band. Um, but the other guys were great. I mean, the drummer was a photographer and a, and a graphic designer. So he took care of all that side of things, which was awesome. Yeah, um, the yeah. bass player was really good with admin and didn't mind getting on the phones and doing emails and things. So that was great. So we had a good little unit, you know, everyone kind of stayed in their lane and um, things were working out. But for us, it was just the, I think the event, the, the eventual kind of um, aggregate of all the stuff we had to deal with kind of just ate away at the fabric of the band after a while. And that's where we ended. Yeah, no, no, it, it, it is a shame. And I think with with the band as well, James, what would be what would you say was the best gig you'd ever did? Festival, small gig, big gig, what would be where you came away and you went, wow, that was amazing? Well, the best gigs for me, the ones that I have the most fondest memories of, weren't the biggest ones. Um, like the, some of the biggest ones we did where we played uh, festivals and things or um, like beach gigs, like when we did in, in Italy on a beach was absolutely amazing. Um, but I was really depressed around that time because something had happened, you know, with the promoter, we'd been ripped off again or something like that. And so I didn't really enjoy it. But the ones that I look back on the fondest have been like maybe the Water Rats in London uh, on yep. our album launch in, I think it may have been 2010 or 2011. Yep. It, was, yep. it was all friends, all family. It was just a great crack. You know, we were enjoying playing. And I feel like there's maybe a, like a message in there, perhaps, you know, looking back, like, when I was taking it seriously and trying to get on a tour and trying to do this, I never enjoyed those tours because there was a lot of money on the line. We were getting ripped off and treated like dirt and a lot of traveling and, you know, just being messed about. But when we were just turning up to play a launch party in front of our friends and family and then going to get hammered afterwards, they're the ones that stick in my memory, even all these years later as being, you know, the most enjoyable and the ones that meant the most to me. Yeah, it's in the funny how you do a full circle of what you do and you come all the way back round again and you always look fondly on that type of situation it's it's i don't know it's it's i suppose maybe it was meant to be but you have to go through that journey to actually get to that point to think well at least you've tried at least you're not going to sit back in you know we have a conversation in 10 years for example james and you're not going to say to me oh i wish i tried because you have you put you know you put everything on the line you gave it your best shot you're not going to be one of these people that sits in a pub, you know, and says, oh, well, I nearly did it or I nearly had a go. Yeah. You can stand yeah. back and go, well, I actually gave it a really good go. 
And I really gave it a good go. And I don't think you can question that. And I don't think you can ask any more than that, to be honest, really, from anybody. No matter what it is, no matter what you're doing. No, and I think that's that's the reward that you take from from having a go. You know, I mean, it, it is uh, it's a corny kind of cliche to say, you know, it's the journey, not the destination. But in my case, that's totally um, confirmed in my experience because I've grown as a person. I mean, if let, let's imagine like I got a uh, I came out of college and got a day job in an office, and I'm, and I'm not I'm not knocking anyone that, that takes that route. But if I stayed on the straight and narrow my entire life, I'd be approaching sort of middle age now thinking, you know, maybe I'd have a couple of kids or something and I'd be questioning, oh, you know, I, I really wanted to be in a rock and roll band and just know what it felt like to play live. And I'd be, I'd have, I'd, I'd, would the feeling of regret of never taking that risk be heavier to deal with for me than getting to this age now thinking the band never worked out, but I did some awesome stuff and some seriously horrifically depressing stuff. But man, I've got all these tales. I've learned all these lessons. I've got all these like riches and memories and, um, you know, not financial riches, but, but, you know, like in terms of memories and um, stories and people that I've met and places I've gone that I never would have gone if it wasn't for the fact that I had a gig there or, you know, something to do with the band and just the internal stuff that I've had to overcome. You know, I've, I've had to overcome stage fright. I've had to over, overcome, you know, um, drinking too much or, you know, get a, get a, getting a handle on my inner demons and um, learning how to, to handle my business conduct better and, and my skin's gotten thicker. I've had to toughen up and, you know, all, all sorts of things. These are the rewards that I've gotten from years of trying. I didn't necessarily succeed, but how do you measure success? You know, we, I think we need to reframe what success is in our society. We think that unless you're, you know, anything that's kind of um, not that 1% exception to the rule anything that's not ed sheeran or, or coldplay is somehow deemed to be a failure and that's just really cruel to everyone else that's doing awesome stuff who may not get you know that level of exposure but that doesn't mean that there's no value to what they do that doesn't mean that they haven't written awesome songs it just means that they got lucky and and you know i'm not saying that they're not talented and hard working but you know talent and hard work without luck it doesn't equal anything, you know, it doesn't equal commercial success. So all those things have a value. And I'm so glad that I, I did take that risk and it didn't work out the way I wanted it to, but I wouldn't change it for the world because I'd much rather have the problems I've got now of trying to figure out, okay, well, you know, what's, what's my life now? Now that didn't work out rather than sitting here thinking, oh, another four hours of my job that I hate to go back to the life that I'm bored of because I didn't have the balls to, you know, joined a band when I was 21, which is what I really wanted to do. And this is now the rest of my life. I can live with this better than I can live with that. Yeah, that, that's actually pretty well said as well, James, because I think many conversations I've had with people where, you know, when I cut my teeth on being a promoter and, you know, we do everything the way that we want to do it and do it well and do it professionally and do the best we could. And I'd always have the, the even some of my friends would say, Oh, um, oh, you, you know, you're you're doing shows. Can you get us some free tickets for X, Y, Z? And I'd be like, Well, I haven't spoken to you for three years. What, what do you want me to do for you? And <laughs> you know, you're in the music industry. You know, James's band's playing tonight. You know, the Water Rats. Can you get us in because we want to see him? Uh, no, because you've only just spoken to me for five minutes, and I've just met you. Who who are you at the end of the day? And that really used to really wind me up. And I think got really thick skinned with stuff like that as well, James, because I just think a lot of people just they want their fifteen minutes of 
oh, I just want to be in front of James or I want to be in front of Bex because she's got a great album or, or X, Y, Z and blah, blah. Well, no, it's not going to happen. So just I haven't got no time for any of that. And I think also as well, going to what you said about failure, I don't think anyone fails. I honestly believe nobody fails. And I know we talk about the journey, but for what you've done, what I've done, what Bex does, what everyone else does, everyone's got success in what they do. And I won't have that said whatsoever. And the one biggest thing that I cannot stand, and Bex knows this really well with me, is negativity. If you go into a room and you've got 10 people and you've got one idiot that starts spouting off crap, he will bring down or she will bring down all those nine people because they start putting, you know, poison apples. Well, this didn't quite work out. That didn't quite work out. They never sold 10 million records. Who cares at the end of the day? Look at some of the artists back in the day now that have sold 30, 40, 50 million records. You know, they haven't even got their publishing. They haven't even got this. So when you start drilling into what stuff actually goes on, I think people should just be a bit more quiet. But it's always the person that I've come across, James, is... is the person that's got the nice detached house and the nice BMW on the drive and they, they earn a good living and they say, I'd really love to work in the music industry or the entertainment business. And I say, great, what you got to do tomorrow morning is is re- resign from your job, forget about your £50,000 a year, hang your balls out there and go for it. And that's basically what's going to happen. So when you come to talk to your bank manager on Friday afternoon, where you're, you've gone over your overdraft quite considerably and he says to you, I want the money back, how are you going to deal with that? Yeah, well, I, I do a, um, I use an example very similar to that in the book where I talk about when people say to musicians, who, you know, after years of trying, they say, oh, you're still trying here. You haven't made it yet. You know, why didn't you give up? You know, which is just, you know, that that's just that's illogical to, to an artist. You know, why would you know, why don't you just give up? It didn't work out. You haven't made a million. So therefore, you know, why should you bother? That's just the polar opposite mindset to how an artist works isn't it we don't care we don't even think about that a lot of the time you know it's out of our control we just do this stuff because we have to you know so i used an analogy very similar to that in the book it would be almost like one of us saying to someone like say you've got a friend who uh, you know works in a bank he's been there for 10 years or whatever nice guy earns good money you know no problems he's got a very respectable you know nine to five job no no problem but it'd be like you saying to him oh you're still working at the bank then steve are you you mean you're not running the bank yet you know you you mean you're not head of like global operations yet you haven't worked your way right to the top one one percent slot i mean are you still trying then are you steve why don't you why don't you give up then why don't you jack it in and do something else because it's not working out because you're not right up the very top <laughs> of the industry you know that that means that you know you fail somehow and I, we we hear that a lot as musicians you know it's like um Oh, he's still having a go with you. It's like, well, I'm not having a go. This is my life. <laughs> this is what I, I do, regardless of whether you think it's successful or not, because I'm not on the X factor, which, you know, that's not my world, you know? No, 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 no. And I think, again, coming back, it's, it's it, I think everyone's got their own success and what they do. And I don't think that there isn't any failures. And I think, when did you sort of, with the band splitting up, James, and everything that you went through, when did you sort of realise? Did you sort of wake up one morning and thought, oh, I've had enough of this? And, you know, did, did did you go and talk to somebody? Did you have a good support network around you? Because I think that's one of the biggest things that I found with, with some of the musicians I've worked with is they've been thrown into doing some... There's one act I, I toured and did a lot of stuff with, and they did some big shows for, for two or three years, and they got plucked from obscurity and then started doing some big stuff and... Unfortunately, one of the band members, you know, he went down a not a great path, but it's it's difficult. So, did you have a good support network around you? Would you be able to call upon that? 
I did, but I didn't take advantage of them, really. I was living with my parents, who were awesome, by the way, you know, really supportive, never pressured me to get a proper job or anything like that. They loved their music, and they were seriously cool, seriously cool dudes, and they still are. But I lived with them, and um, I was very closed up. I felt a lot of pressure. I felt like this is my baby. This, this, this is my, you know, big idea that I've started here. I've got to make it work, you know. Um, so, yeah, I was very hard on myself like my parents didn't know i was going through a lot of the stuff i went through until they read the book you know most people think the book is hilarious but my parents found it quite upsetting um they had no idea that i i'd done therapy that i was seriously depressed that i'd considered you know <laughs> ending it a few times you know um my life that is and um I had I was drinking every night, you know. I I haven't had a drink in two years because I had to stop because my relationship with drinking is I associate it with sadness and depression rather than something that I would do, you know, for pleasure. So, it yeah, it really took me to the lowest depths. This this pursuit, you know, and it was only when I hit the floor, um, when I got to the lowest point possible, where where I had that existential crisis, where I had to um, almost peel my you know peel that layer of skin off and, and shed skin and and be reborn to a certain extent i had to realize okay this hasn't worked out but that doesn't mean that it's over and it doesn't mean that i failed and it doesn't mean that i made a mistake it just means that this is the way my journey's gone and there are good things about it and bad things about it but i can't continue to let it eat me away as a person like this anymore i've got to get some balance and it, and, and ever since i did that Things have gone from better to better for me, you know. I've I've, I've released two of my you know best, most successful albums and a book. Um, I live in a nice house now. I'm making more money from my own music than I ever did before since I stopped trying so hard. And um, I think that's an important lesson, which is also in the book. It's like, you know, you you are still a person, and it can't take everything from you. And you know, I was unaware of. The, the amazing support network I had around me because I was unaware of everything other than the band. I was neglecting my family. I was neglecting my relationship. I was neglecting myself. And there's no need for any of that. It does, you don't need to let it get to that point. No, <clears throat> no, no, no. And I, I think, you know, with your, your mum and dad finding out, <laughs> didn't know what he was going through until they, you know, came onto the book. I mean, that must have been a massive shock to them, really. Oh, yeah, yeah, I felt quite bad about it. And obviously, they read it before it came out. So they were like, you know, two of the first people to read it. And I was like, oh, man, you know, <laughs> have I made a mistake here? Because I thought the book, I thought the book was funny, like a thrill ride. And like the first two people have read it have, have been like, uh, love, uh, we need to talk. <laughs> I, I was like, I started to get a bit worried thinking, oh, man, I don't want this to be like a misery memoir, you know. But fortunately, since it's come out, you know, most people have said that, you know, <laughs> they found it really funny and enjoyable. So so they can laugh at my, at my um, experience. <laughs> well, the, and your mum phoning you up every day asking if you're okay. So you come around tonight, James, for a bit of dinner, you know, just making sure. Because mums do that, you know, mums do that with their sons and they want to make sure you're all right. But she probably highlighted a bit more saying, you come around tonight for your tea or something to eat, blah, 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 blah. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, they, they've realised now how little I like to ask for help. So they're, they're always checking in now, like, you need a hand with that? You know, that's what we're here for. Ask us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, mum. Okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I think with, with your um, with your albums and your, the book you've you've launched, James, and all your experience, you've got quite a big following online. Do you get many questions come in online from social media people asking you stuff, and are they going through any situations with their band? Do they sort of call upon you now, and you're becoming more of a what's the word, an agony aunt or sort of an advisor? How would you typify that? Yeah, I mean, I've always had a bit of that. 
Um, I mean, I'm in musical circles, so, um, you know, I, I often get, you know, questions from friends who are like trying to set up a label or, you know, now at my age, you know, they've got sons who are joining their first band and stuff. And can I help them out with this? And, you know, even today I was helping my nephew out with some recording stuff. So, I mean, I've always kind of done that. But yeah, with the online thing, that's definitely kind of um, expanded out now. Um, but I, I don't get as much of it as you'd think. I mean, most of this stuff on Twitter, Twitter is where my biggest following is. I think I'm over 300,000 now. But most of that is just because I'm quite chopsy on Twitter, opinionated. So most of the messages and things I get on Twitter <laughs> are people, just, um, <laughs> people who want to argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what sort of arguments do you have? Do people Do you sort of like react to a post and it starts from there? Or do you put stuff out that you want to get a reaction to, or, or is it, you know, how how does that work? No, I, I'm very um, naive when it comes to my social media because I do have a large following, and I do forget that. Like I just post things, and then I end up being quoted in the Daily Mirror or something. Um, <laughs> like, like I, I commented on something that Johnny Rotten said about Trump the other day, and um, you know that got me a lot of heat. So all the old Sex Pistols fans were coming at me, and then the next thing I noticed, I've been quoted in a in a magazine. There's a big picture of Johnny Rotten's face with my tweet next to it, and I was like, oh, I, I keep forgetting that people do actually see the things that I put out. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, Piers Morgan's come at me. We had a bit of a spat. Um, I was quoted in the Daily Mail for saying something about Morrissey. So I don't do it to get a reaction. I just say it because they're my opinion and I see something you know online and I, I join in the conversation but I forget that I do have quite a reach on there now so it comes back to bite me quite regular <laughs> yeah that's quite interesting because people people could turn around and say well oh James is just doing it to sell more you know to sell more books and sell more albums but you know you're just doing it because you obviously just comment on something and it comes back the other way so I don't think it matters what you do this day and age there's always someone well, that's watching it really doesn't matter what you say. Like I could say on Twitter, hey guys, have a great day, love you loads. And then somebody will comment saying, oh yeah, well it's not a great day for the kids in Rwanda. You know, it's like, you know, you literally can't win. <laughs> no, no, you can't. And uh, no, you can't. And I think, uh, you know, this, I suppose is one of the reasons why, you know, Bex and I started the podcast because we wasn't sure and thinking, you know, are we going to put, you know, is it going to be interesting? Is it not going to be interesting? And, you know, thankfully it's, it's, it's been really positive, but you never know what's, what's you know what's going to come out and it's i probably would never had this conversation with you and some of the conversation i had with some of the people we work with and known across the world and i think it's sort of like a privilege really because even though we're having a, a conversation and, and a chat it's it's timeless so i think it was part of our stamp to sort of like leave something in society that says well no you know we did that and i'm proud of what we did and the guests we had on they were open and honest and telling us about their story and i, I think that's a good thing to be honest Totally, yeah, totally. I mean, being part of the conversation is awesome. And um, I love social media. I mean, it's the same as any, it's like a pub, isn't it? You know what I mean? Like most of the people in there are cool. And then it only takes like that one or two dudes who are, you, you don't want to get cornered with because they're irritating. It's, it's a bit like that. But I'd much rather have that. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that like 100 people <laughs> call me all the names under the sun and things like that. I'm happy because... You know, I don't care. I can join the conversation. I've got a platform to share my views. Some people agree with me and some people really don't. And, um, yeah, there's kind of a freedom to that, you know? Well, that's like anything. You go into a supermarket and buy a certain brand of something you like, not everybody's going to like it. So I, I don't think there's any issues with that at the end of the day. And I think no. everyone should be able to say what they want to, really, you know, to a point, because everyone's got a view. And I don't think that should ever be taken away from anybody, really. No, I'm all for it. I'm quite a staunch um, anti-censorship 
minded type person um you know i mean you can see anything on the internet and um you know that's obviously one of the downsides to the internet is you know with protection of um you know children and you know not proliferating you know hateful sort of views or violence or anything like that but it's a difficult balance in how you moderate that stuff because it could become a slippery slope can't it you know um i actually got stung by that myself when i released the video for the power which was the first single from the new album um there's no swearing in it or anything like that it's just a typical revolutionary rock song you know you know, rise up and <laughs> take to the streets, comrades, that type of thing. <laughs> and um, I made a video for it during lockdown, which is just me performing in the house next door and a pile of stock footage of like protests and things. And YouTube um, took it down the day after it went up. It went up in July. So it was like not long before the US election. And it wasn't long after all the, the, the riots and the protests and things. So I think it was quite sensitive at that point. But yeah, YouTube took it down. And then Facebook wouldn't let me run any paid ads or anything on it. So I couldn't promote it that way. Um, so I'd effectively been censored. You know, my video was, you know, to all intents and purposes, banned from YouTube. They've put it back up now, but um, I spoke to them and they said that I can have it on the platform, but I can't promote it. So it's just sitting there now, you know, um, which I thought was really odd because I'm not inciting violence or hate or anything like that. So I think that there is a, uh, a very scary, slippery slope. So I'm kind of divided as to how I feel about what should be censored uh, or should anything be censored at all because that just opens up the um the floodgates then to um you know to people having their music videos censored for having <laughs> stock footage in it from youtube yeah and, and, and as soon as you put the video up it came down straight away was it was was it was it a day a couple of days or was it instant I think it was the day after I I put it up and then I I immediately set to like promoting it then you know posting it all over the place and things and then um, you know went to bed pat myself on the back you know for a good day's work look forward to uh, seeing what people think <laughs> tomorrow you know yeah. and then I got messages from people saying no I can't click on the link it's not working and I went to click on it and yeah it was just saying this video cannot be um, displayed or whatever it said basically a big black box where the video should be and um, I I sort of like emailed YouTube, which is hard to do. They don't make themselves easy to contact. And um, yeah, it, I think it went back up and then it came down again. And then I tried to promote it with a paid sort of boost and then that was rejected. So I kind of appealed the rejection and then that's when I was, I actually got an email from them in person to say, um, yeah, we rejected this because you know, we've, I think they said um, we've deemed it to have shocking content. I think it was something like that. The, the word shocking was in there. So I spoke to them. I said, what, what's so shocking about it? I've got the footage from within YouTube. And they had a real problem with the uh, the footage of the Colston statue coming down in Bristol because there's a bit of that in there. And that was, oh, one of the, okay. that was one of the clips that they'd flagged as being too shocking. So which I thought was crazy. You know, I mean, you know, if I was in there promoting, you know, Nazism or something, then I could understand. But I was just using stock footage and I wasn't, there was the context of that wasn't one of uh, incitement to violence or anything. It was just in there, you know? So, yeah. So I think it's a very slippery area, the old censorship. Yeah, I think it is. And I think, um, I think social media is there for, for a purpose. And I think it, 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 it's positive. It's able to, you know, connect people, provide a message. But I, I do, I do agree. There is a bit of a fine line and, I think sometimes it is difficult, you know, especially with someone's art, it's difficult to get across someone's art sometimes and people don't understand it or that if it's not gone through 10 censorships to actually make it, you know, right, that's going to happen on this particular channel because it's it's after the watershed then. But then again, most people can access anything anyway now. So, yeah. 
it's it's really really difficult. It, so I I do agree. Really, it, it's you've got a bit of a backlash for doing something that you just wanted to do, and it, you sort of paid the price for it. Yeah, I think the arbiters of it now are unfortunately private companies as well, who can do what they want. I mean, they you know they they can take down whatever video they want on YouTube, and I think that's the difference that people say, "Oh, you've been censored, you've been banned." Well, not really, because. I consider that to be more something that the government does, you know, where this was just a private company deciding we don't want that on our site, so we're taking it down. And that's the problem is that all of these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, you know, YouTube, Instagram, they're all private companies. So it is a form of censorship in the, in the sense that they're moderating what content gets heard and what views get heard. But at the same time, they're fully within their rights to do it. So it's a, it's a, it's a strange area. Touching on that subject as well, James, it does sort of beg the question as well is, you know, me and you, um, you know, we're going to put a new album out and we go and put it on social media, Facebook, and we put it on all the, on the streaming platforms. Do you really have a chance to actually make it if you, if you wouldn't sign to a big major? Because like you say, they're all, they all own the same company. They've all got shares in Spotify. They all own YouTube. So it does beg the question sometimes. You think, do I actually stand a chance of doing something or should I just, you know, try my best? And you're blocked every which way you go. And I think partly because the bigger companies are, are, are just scared of letting go of the reins because they know if they do, the floodgates will open and um, it's, say, a free-for-all, but it's going to be more of a level playing field for everybody. Yeah, I mean, the way that I navigate that really is I just stay true to myself. I just stay, I mean, as long as it's authentic, then I don't mind. Like, I said some things online, which I regret saying, but I meant it at the time. You know, I didn't say it for provocation or anything like that. I know that was my view at the time and I changed my mind. So... For me, as long as um, I feel like I'm just being true to myself and the things that I believe and I'm putting, um, as long as my art comes from a place of authenticity, um, then I can stand behind that. So I, for me, having the freedom to just be myself, to say what I think and to put out the music I want, when I want, how I want, that to me is important. And I, I, I think I take that for granted now as someone has always done it that way. I think if I had a major label, I don't think, I, I think they'd take my Twitter account off me. <laughs> you know? So they'd be like, yeah. you can't, you know, you've got, you've got to consider your brand. You know, you can't say this, you've got to say that, you've got to support that cause, right? Because that's fashionable right now. So, you you know, you've got to wear a t-shirt by this cause. You know, they, I think it would all be stage managed and false. And I think I would feel a heavier burden of um, shame for that than what I do now, which is just occasionally embarrassing myself. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I think we've, we've, we've all done that. Uh, I suppose through our life uh, well you know and I think that's never ever going to change I think what what would you say is the best resources that have helped you on your way through the industry James through the music industry all, all the, the ups and downs what's the best resources that's helped you to get to this point for me um, other people I guess um, I haven't a lot of I haven't really had a lot of mentors or, or, or helping hands or leg ups but when they have come, they've come in the form of other people. Um, I've had advice from people who've walked the walk before me, whether it's um, in the industry or, um, you know, touring or production or anything like that. The biggest resources for me, outside of my own experience and grafting and just figuring it out as I go, uh, have been other people. You know, some some people have been very good to me. They've, um, you know, they've given me good insights and um, information and, and tried to hook me up, even if, even when things haven't worked out. They've been the relationships that have actually helped me to to progress. Yeah, and I, and I think, again, if we haven't got good people around us, then it's really difficult to actually just move forward, really. And I think sometimes, you know, touching on the, the advice bit, 
a lot of people give you advice, but sometimes it is really solid advice and you walk away and you think, you know, that's, that actually resonates with me. And I think with your experience, what advice would you give people now starting out in the industry? You've got a young band in front of you, young musician, and they're sitting down with you for a cup of tea in a nice comfy chair. What would you be actually saying to them? What advice would you give them? I would say at this point with the industry the way it is, do as much as you can by yourself for as long as you can by yourself. You know, when the labels then come a knock in, you know, you're in a better negotiating position because you've already got a fan base. You already know how things work. Um, you know a bit about the business um, and you've got leverage, you know. Um, I think you don't need to like, I, I don't think the default decision needs to be anymore like it was when I first started, right? We've got to get gigs. We've got to do whatever we got to do to get the attention of the labels. I, I think, forget about that. What I'd say to everybody is do as much as you can by yourself for as long as you can, because all the tools are there. They're free. You can record things cheap and easy. Now um, you can record things at home. You can put it out there and promote it yourself. Um, all the tools are there, which is awesome. And never before of, of, of artists and musicians had that power. So it's not easy. There's a lot to learn and you are going to lose a lot in the trade off, but you are going to be able to keep moving if you do it that way. And then when opportunity does come, you are going to be in a much better position. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's sound advice, and it's coming from you know someone that's had a lot of experience and what you've been through. I think you know bands, young bands now should sort of you know take heed to that and listen to what you're saying. And I think you know take that in the, sort of bank it in their in their mind. I think no, that was really good, solid advice from James. And you want to take it to the next level, then you could you know give them even more advice. So I think that's that's sound, to be honest with you. Um, if you could change anything in the music industry, I know this is a this is a big question, James, but if you can actually change anything at all and what really annoys you, past and present, what would you do? What would you change today, past or present, really? I think it's a tricky one because the main problem with the music business, I think, is is the fact that it's a business. And I think it's that, it's that um, classic conflict between commerce and art. So uh, coming back to something I said earlier, the, one of the main bugbears that I've got about it is, is the lack of vision, the lack of imagination, the lack of real understanding for art and what really makes a musician and a, and a fan, what really gets their blood going and what makes them tick. You know, it is run too much like a business, that kind of, you know, throw 50 bands at the wall and then, you know, shovel money into the one that sticks. It, that seems to be the mindset. And I know, I know running it from a business, running the business side is, is a separate talent to being a musician. And, you know, they don't necessarily need to understand each other's lanes, you know. But um, I think for me, yeah, if I could change anything about the business, it, it's that it would be the business side would be more made up of people that have more understanding of the mentality of an artist rather than the mentality of a shoe salesman who just wants to shift as many units as they can. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, th I think... Um... I think having a mix of different people and, and got different skills, I think makes for it just makes it for a, I suppose, a better environment for everybody, really. And I think yeah, some risk taking. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. And I think if COVID's taught us anything, maybe it's to reset the button and actually look at what what we're all doing to think, okay, how am I going to navigate my way around this? And one thing that I I do think is well, important, but also I think pretty good because of what's happened in the world, which is terrible but one good thing in my opinion that's come out is that people are watching netflix a lot more they're watching amazon a lot more and they're down in downloading a lot more music james so 
it's probably a good time to actually put albums out there, singles out there, and actually connect with fans and, and give them something to cheer about. I think so, yeah. And independent artists, are at a, they're at an advantage over the major label acts because they control their own social media. You know, they don't have to get permission to do a live stream or, or run it by the PR brand rep or whatever. You know, they can just, you know, and, and a lot of these major label artists don't even you know, control their own um, pages or content or anything like that. So so it's independent op- artists have got a big, massive opportunity at the moment to um, to get on there and, and dominate where, where major label artists can't. Because as soon as the live scene opens up again, that's it. We're back to the big boys owning the show again. You know, they're going to be the ones, all the, all the big major touring bands are going to be taking over the whole space real soon. So there's an opportunity now for independent artists to, um, you know, to, to sort of push their way in a little bit whilst the major label artists are sitting around wondering uh, how, how to work Twitter because they've never been on there before. Yeah, and, I, I, and again, that, you, that's, that's another interesting point as well, James, where when live comes back and, and the big festivals come back and the, and the big acts start touring, it always intrigues me, the fact of some of the meetings that I did back in the day and, you know, labels weren't really interested in, in touring, they weren't really interested in live, you know, but now... They know exactly what fees big acts get paid. They know the merchandising revenue is absolutely astronomical and they see it as a big payday. And I think, you know, it's another area where the, the labels are starting to, you know, maximise as much as possible on, you know, on all of that side of it. And the acts are losing, you know, even more money. But I think you're right. I think live is where it's at. Live is where it always will be at. And I've always maintained, um, it'd be good to get your thoughts on this as well, but I've always maintained for any band, if you go out and you you tour and you hone your craft and you perform and you and you really do your apprenticeship on the road and you do a killer performance, anything can happen from that because at the end of the day, whether you're one man and his dog or you're playing in front of 50,000 people, you will kill that performance and then opportunities will come from that. Yeah, I think live is definitely somewhere where the... Um for want of a better phrase, <laughs> the men are separated from the boys. You know what I mean? It's like, it's all very well being awesome on YouTube where you've got a perfectly stage managed, you know, environment where you can kind of um, do 15 takes before you put your video out. Uh, it's all very well having the comfort of a live stream and all those things are awesome. I'm not knocking any of those things. But, you know, when it comes to playing live, you, you know, that's a different ball game, you know? And I think uh, that definitely separates where your um, long-term classic artists are, are going to be crafted from and, uh, and where the people who are much more internet sensations are going to be. And I think in terms of uh, music, you know, live music is never going to go away. No. You know, the, the, no. the, the energy and the passion that comes from a, a live performance for everybody involved, you know, for the audience and the bands, it's just something that is never going to be replaced. That's not going anywhere. I mean, COVID may have killed it for a bit, but it'll be back. You know, it's never going. It's never going to completely go away. And as soon as all the small venues have died out, and it's only just the big acts touring for a bit, that'll happen for a bit, and then there'll be a renaissance where people will start playing in each other's living rooms, and there'll be a new thing that that grows up from the ground again because it's irreplaceable. It's never going to go away. So. If you can't play live and you've only ever, you know, you've got a million views on YouTube and you and you and you, and you like you've done all that stuff, that's awesome. But you know, you're missing out. <laughs> you're missing out on <laughs> on an essential part of being a musician. And I think if you can't play live, I think it will, you know, it will it will start to hinder your trajectory after a while. Yeah, I, I, and that's coming from, you know, yourself. That's been there, done it, wore the t-shirt. And I think 
I think it's really important. And I think, yeah, if they hone the craft and, you know, they're playing in front of one person and they build up to play in front of, you know, big support tours or, or, or big festivals, then they know why they're there. And I think they've had an education and, and like you say, they're missing out. And I think a YouTube sensation is a bit different to someone that's actually doing a, you know, a, a 50 date tour across the UK in front of one man and his dog and then gets the opportunity to play in front of 10,000 people. Oh, it makes you a better musician. I mean, when we went on tour with Snot, we did a month around Europe, 10 countries, and the, the first date of your tour, if you compare the performance to the last date of the tour, it's like a different band, you know, because yeah. you become like a machine. You're playing every night. Doing a gig here and there is fun, uh, you, know, and, you know, and it's better than nothing, but you, you don't get that momentum that you get as a band where you're doing it every single night. Every night your stage show gets a little bit better, a little bit tighter, a little bit more yeah. fierce. You get to be a better front man. You get to wind the crowd up more. You know, you, you get better. You get sharp by doing it, not by reading about it or watching videos about it, but by doing it. And you can rehearse yourself to death. I mean, it's all very well being the best band in the rehearsal room. But as soon as you get up on stage where the monitors suck and the sound is terrible and you're playing through somebody else's amp, you know, can you can you do it then under those circumstances? You know, it's like playing <laughs> live makes you a better musician. And, uh, and it, it, there's no other way around it. No, no, and I, and I, I suppose, going back in the day as well, James, with all the acts that have come through, you know, the big acts that we know today, they might not have got the opportunity today, but because they've honed their craft in the 60s and 70s and the 80s and the 90s, their stage performances are, are awesome. So when you go and spend $100 or $200 or whatever the, the ticket price may be, you know what you're going to get on the tin. You know when you go and see that act, whether you like Coldplay, U2, David Bowie, Prince, whatever michael jackson you know what you're going to get because you know that act is going to put on an absolutely stunning live yeah. performance it's just as simple as that um yeah. and it's not about yeah, okay getting 10 million views on instagram yeah great but when you're either playing in front of 250 people in the water racks in london and every single because i used to say to bands if you go and do that 20 people 50 people i guarantee you i guarantee you People will buy your album on that night. You'll have 10, 15, 20, 30 sales. It used to prove to me every time. Band would say, oh, well, do you think we will sell? You go and do a great performance and perform really well and be really nice to your audience and be respectful, you will sell albums. And some of the, the acts, you know, some of the unsigned acts, James, that I worked with or knew, you know, they would do a gig and sell 100 albums a night, literally, you know, seven, eight pounds. And they would phone me up and say, well, we've just done a thousand pounds, you know, selling our album. Well, yeah, hello. What did I say to you? You know, yeah, it's because the connection is so so much deeper. I mean, you know, I, I, there are people that I love that I've never seen live, and I watch their videos on YouTube over and over again. And, and you know, and there's a value to that, and it's awesome that we've got that. But you know, there's been bands that I've hated, and I've seen them live, and I've come away transformed like, oh my god, that is my new favorite band, you know. It's just something about seeing a band doing their thing up loud with the, with the kick drum hits you in the guts, you know. There's nothing like it, man. No, 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 there isn't. I, and I think that I think that's why I got in, involved in the industry. Loved live, loved just going to watch different bands play, all different genres. And I think, yeah, it, it ends up becoming in your in your blood, and you walk away thinking, I was really, you know, really inspired for that. And if you was just 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 say, James, if you was back in your band today, or you writing another album. Who, who would you most like to collaborate with today? Who would inspire you to sit down and say, I'm going to write an, a new song, I'm going to write an album, or even go and tour with? Who would you, who would inspire you today? I'm a massive fan of Sia, the singer, um, you know, Chandelier Girl. <laughs> I absolutely, 
she's my favorite singer. I yeah. absolutely yeah, love yeah, yeah. Sia. Um, her voice just does something to my um, <laughs> to my physiology. Um, so yeah, I mean, like, I think anything she sang on would just immediately make it amazing. So I would I would love to write a song with Sia where where she could sing, you know, and uh, <laughs> I would I could just say the I could just take the back seat, you know what I mean? And um, <laughs> yeah, I, that, I would love that. Well, let's make that happen, shall we? I'll pick up the phone, yeah, you have a conversation, we'll get it done. <laughs> okay, well, I'll leave it with you, Pete, right? You can pull some strings and uh, <laughs> no pressure. Do you know what my, my ethos is? If you don't ask, you don't get. Don't get. So I've asked, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll await your call. <laughs> <laughs> and with everything you've, you've been through as well, James, and the struggles, the ups and downs, with your spare time, you know, what do you get out up to in your spare time, really? And especially what you've been through. Did you find any new sort of hobbies, or you know, did you take up walking, or you know, what sort of things do you do when you get the chance? All my activities are quite solitary, really. I'm, I, I think I've always been that way. As a kid, I was very much like that. You know, I like building my own toys out of Lego and creating my own comic books and stuff. <laughs> and I'm very much the same way now. You know, reading. I'm a massive reader. Uh, perhaps that's why I found writing a book so easy is because I read so much. Um, I've got to read. I love watching Bollywood movies. I'm addicted to them. I watch one every night. And considering they're about four hours long, that's no wow. mean feat. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's about it, really. I exercise every day. Um, I'm pretty clean living. I don't smoke or drink. I'm quite boring, really. And I am a bit of a workaholic. I mean, I get up about half past six and I work all day on my various things. And um, yeah, I mean, downtime for me really is, yeah, a little bit of reading um, and watching a Bollywood movie. <laughs> That's about no, it. No, no, no. Do, do you exercise in the morning? Do you sort of get up in the morning exercise or do you sort of, um, any other part of the day, what is your sort of day routine like? be the morning when i was really really into it i would do a few miles before breakfast jogging every morning um and that was when i was super shredded i had a six pack and all that sort of stuff and i was really watching counting every calorie and taking it real seriously but i was really depressed at that point that was when i was at my most unhealthy mentally um so i've uh i'm not to that level now i try and do exercise before breakfast if i can but if i can't be bothered i will leave it to later on so i'm trying to get a bit more balanced now and i don't monitor you know every calorie that passes my lips as well if i want a cake i'll have one you know (laughs) so which i think is a much more healthy approach to 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 good health oh absolutely I, i think i think getting out in the fresh air doing a bit of exercise eating what you want having a balance yeah, I think there's too much pressure on. And I think also as well, James, it's quite, yeah. you know, interesting what you're highlighting because we had a, um, Becky and I had a conversation with um, a lady called Charlotte Armitage and she's a psychotherapist and counsellor. Um, she's an agent as well. So she looks after um, sort of uh, disadvantaged actors. And it was really interesting to talk to her about the, the way that mental illness has affected people and the way that she can protect people and help people. So I think what you're highlighting today as well is that, Anyone can go through it. Anyone, any one of us can, you know, have all different types of problems throughout their life. And I think it's good to highlight because I think if you don't talk, you don't know. And I think talking is probably one of the best healers you can have because at least you're you're portraying who you are and you're and you're you're connecting with people. And everybody thinks that these things are exclusive to themselves as well. Everybody I know that has anxiety problems always says to me, ah, yeah, but I've got anxiety, see? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, but, you know, to a certain extent, we all have, you know what I mean? There's there's a difference between having a clinical anxiety disorder and anxiety because we all feel that. And I think it's good to get that out in the open because once you realize that it's not just you that's going through that, 
it's not just you that has self-doubt or a sense of um, existential crisis or failure or regret everybody has their own version of that which is I, I which is why i try to be as honest as i can in my songwriting you know like my when i was really going through my depths of despair and depression i wrote an album called home where i talked very openly about it and um it was one of my most successful albums that you know really resonated with a lot of people you know they had my lyrics tattooed on their hearts and things and you know because that honesty um, it, it speaks to something which is in all of us, I think. You know, we all feel those things. And I, I don't think there's any shame or anything in, in being honest or open about your vulnerabilities or your failings or your weaknesses or your, your fears because they're universal. I think it's a strength to be able to, to confront those things and, and admit to them and put them out there. And you can only deal with it once you do that. So um, I'm very honest in the book about my personal demons and, and fall downs. And there's a whole chapter, after I did therapy for a year, uh, there's a whole chapter in there called Secrets of My Therapy, where I put in there a pile of like useful tips that I learned through doing therapy that I think could help people. So, um, and, and, and again, they're universal. They're not musician problems. They're, they're problems that you know, we all have. Yeah, no, no. And I think, oh, yeah, again, I think well said, James, as well. And I think, you know, we're all, we're all human. We're all just trying to do our thing, no matter what it is or where it is. I think we're all trying to do our bit. And I, I, you know, I sort of echo that as well. And I think going back to what you said earlier about failure, I don't think anyone fails, really. I don't, I, whether the person's 10 or whether the person's, you know, 80, everyone's got a story to tell. And I think we've all got a book in us. And I think, do you think there'll be another book coming out? Will you will you put any, any more books out and any plans for that? Yeah. Yeah, I've got a plan for a second book, but it won't be about me or the music world this time. I'm very interested in nonfiction. Um, and if it will be about anything, it'll be about some of these subjects that I'm interested in. Um, but I won't say any more than that at this point. No, no, no it's fine. That's a, we, maybe that's a conversation, another podcast, another time, James. <laughs> Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, really, to, it's been really great to chat with you today, James. And just to finish off, where where can our listeners connect with you online, website? Where can they get the book, social media, or, or not social media, whatever you want to do, really? Um, well, I'm uh, I'm at uh, James Kennedy UK on pretty much every platform. That's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, YouTube. Uh, my website is jameskennedystuff.com. Um, so all my stuff, I'm very active on all those platforms. So um, my album, for example, is on Spotify at James Kennedy. Um, I'm the guy with the, I, I'm the moody looking guy with the leather jacket. There's another James <laughs> Kennedy in America who's a dance DJ who I get confused for regularly. Uh, I'm not the dance DJ guy. I'm the, I'm the moody looking rock guy with the, with the leather jacket. So that's, on Spotify, that's me. Click that one. Um, you can hear the new album. If you go to James Kennedy stuff on YouTube, you can hear the new album for free as well. And um, yeah, all my socials, my websites, uh, the, the pinned sort of post on all my, my pages has got a link to the book and the album. And there's free chapters online and stuff as well that you can link to and on uh, here on YouTube. So it's, it's pretty easy to, um, to, to, to find my stuff. Uh, check it out and come and say hi. And um, yeah, for anyone that's interested in anything to do with the music industry and the personal journeys of the people within it, um, even if you're a non-musician, um, definitely check out uh, Noise Damage. I'm not um, like like trying to nudge you to buy it you can steal it or borrow it or whatever you want but um you know I, i'm just happy that people are reading it and i'm interested to see what people think so check it out no that's fantastic and i think really it's been a you know it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today james and thanks for your time thanks so much for having us man it's been a great chat i've enjoyed it well that's all for today's episode of the entertainment engine and thanks for listening 
Join us again next week when we talk more about the entertainment industry and delve into the music streaming area. Plus, we will have our question of the day and music and movie facts for our listeners. It would be great to have your feedback on the show, so you can always drop us a message at any time. We would love to hear from you. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening to the show. And remember to all stay safe. The Entertainment Engine.